0: Moncrief on News Talk.
1: Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.
0: Now, it revolutionized music, but not so much for the man who invented it. From the 1960s on, the Moog synthesizer gave musicians access to a vast array of sounds. Sounds that you can still hear today. Alan Glinsky is the author of Switched On Bob Moog and the Synthesizer Revolution. Afternoon, Albert.
1: Uh,
0: Hi, Sean. It's great to be here. Uh, now, I suppose, the thing about Bob Moog's childhood is it's exactly what you expect it to have been like.
1: His childhood? Well, yes and no. It was uh, the Depression in America, and uh, it was kind of a dysfunctional childhood. He uh, grew up with two parents who were kind of at cross purposes, an engineer father and a mother who beat him over the hands when he was practicing classical piano. So he had a lot of conflicts in his life when he was growing up. It was a, a strange uh, and yet at the same time kind of
0: a precious childhood. Yeah, though a, a lot of time spent with the engineer father uh, uh, learning about electronics, I, I think they, they built theremins together in the in the early days.
1: They sure did. And that was his uh, way of of crossing music, Uh, the piano, which he really didn't like to practice with engineering, which he really enjoyed with his dad. And so the combination was the theremin, that instrument you play without touching and moving your hands in the electromagnetic fields. Mm. So yes, that was his start in uh, electronic music. Uh, And people would be
0: well, if you've ever watched a nineteen sci-fi movie, you'll hear a theremin at some point in the course of that. So the synthesizers, though, Albert, like there were many iterations of that, it seems, before he actually achieved some degree of success with it.
1: Yeah, he kind of. He always said that he felt like he slipped backwards on a banana peel into the <laughs> electronic music business because he just put together uh, a contraption for a, actually a classical avant-garde composer, Herb Deutsch, in 1964, who just said, "I'm tired of splicing tape and and recording things and running the tape backwards to make all of these sounds, these kind of outer space sounds. Isn't there a simpler way to do this?" And so they. Put this together, and uh, it was all of a sudden just uh, taken up by people almost uh, without Bob even realizing what was going on. He brought it to a convention, and he was just showing it off like you would show off a. uh, a pie or something at a, uh, at, a at a fair. And uh, people started saying, I'll take one of these and two of that. And he was in business without even realizing it. So that's kind of how it took off. And I took a few years before the pop world sort of uh, noticed it. And then that's when it really started to take off.
0: But the, like the first or the early versions of it, these things were huge, were they?
1: They certainly were. They were uh, gigantic. It's because they were all these modules that had to be interconnected. It was all analog and it was all connected by uh, wires and patch cords. So it sort of looked like the cockpit of a large jet uh, today, a large uh, uh, a jumbo jet, and everything was connected with a nest of wires. And uh, it was it was a complex interface. Yeah, definitely. They they were quite large, and uh, Keith Emerson uh, made a big deal about that when he, uh, being the first real rocker to bring one of these on stage, and he called it his monster mode, and it became almost a prop, uh, something to to show off what you were doing. That it was so complex in front of an audience of thousands.
0: Mm. The the uh, um, uh, but in 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 his mind. Was, in Bob's mind, I mean, did he initially uh, foresee this as an instrument that would be used in the pop world, or was he thinking in more kind of mainstream or classical music?
1: He was definitely thinking in terms of more uh, mainstream classical avant-garde music. He was kind of an academic guy himself. He was an engineer, and he published in journals and that sort of thing. And And the man that he worked with to develop the original prototype uh, was certainly not a rocker. They weren't even sure they wanted to put a keyboard on it because uh, one of these avant-garde composers that they consulted said, Oh, no, you don't want to put a keyboard on this device because then... He literally said, pop musicians will get a hold of it and they will make junk out of it. That's what he said. So, (laughs) uh, no, it wasn't intended for that at all. What happened was uh, Bob was almost ready to give up because it was so expensive to make these things. And uh, he was just about ready to uh, quit the business altogether. And as one last resort, he went out to a convention in California. It was the first time he'd really been out there with his his instrument, went into the studio and was just used for an album called the Zodiac Cosmic Sounds in 1967, which was a sort of psychedelic album. And um, he didn't really think he wanted his instrument associated with that, but he had no control. And um, as I say in the book, it's sort of like a a parent who has no control over a teenager. Uh, He didn't really like the people that his instrument was hanging out with, but (laughs) he had little choice and it was taken up. And by the time it got to uh, the monkeys and um, the beetles and the birds and all of that, uh, there was no turning back then. And so he, he really became kind of, uh, without again, like slipping backwards on a banana peel, uh, not because he wanted to, he became a sort of iconic uh, guru of uh, the synth world in the pop world.
0: Mm. But referring back to that, that that banana skin, how much of this did he uh, did he uh, copyright? How much of it did he own and couldn't be replicated? But-
1: well, that's that's actually a very good point, and that's one of the reasons why he never made a lot of money during his lifetime, uh, because uh, as far as patents go, he um, only patented one component of this very complex. A machine, and that was his uh, filter, his famous ladder filter, which gives that sound that people who love Moog synthesizers know so well, the fat bass, that kind of growling fat bass sound. Oh, that's one of the things that the ladder filter was famous for. So he patented that, and they even stole it. Uh, was stole? I mean, it was stolen by uh, other synth manufacturers in just a few years, and it was too expensive to litigate. So yes, he really couldn't patent it, because the components that go in were all uh, based on other patents, and it was very difficult, and it was expensive to patent things too. So uh, he really always suffered financially very much.
0: Yeah, because th- my kind of memory of it is, is that synthesizers in general, a bit like Hoover's, were called Moogs, even though they probably weren't produced by his company at all. They were like after a very short space of time. Is it fair to say most of them were made in Japan?
1: Uh yes well it, definitely and and when uh, Roland and Yamaha got a hold of the idea of the synthesizer it it became a uh, a a big market item that was uh, mass produced in numbers that Bob could never compete with that's definitely true but you're right there's this um there's a whole chapter in my book called genericide which means uh you know that the death of a a a trade uh, name because it becomes a generic you know like uh, um, uh, uh, Jello or Band-Aid or something like that. Uh, people now start referring to the product by the brand name, and and it, it dilutes the whole brand name. And then at some point, Bob was actually plagued by other synth manufacturers, where people would say, "Yeah, I'll take a Moog," and they were really talking about something else. They're complete albums that are put out that that um, say Moog on the back uh, or, there, or on the front of the album, and uh, they have nothing to do with Bob's instruments. They're they're just synthesizers. So so you're absolutely right.
0: Yeah, did how long did his company survive for or is it still there?
1: Oh, it's it's still going strong in Asheville, North Carolina and uh, uh, produces a a, a lot of Moog instruments now. But he uh, had to sell his company uh, at some point because he was uh, he was bought out and it took years and years before he actually could reclaim his name. He lost the claim to his name and his trademark and everything. So uh, eventually he got it back, but it cost him Um, hundreds of thousands of dollars of his personal money just to get his trademark back and his name so that he could use it so that that was terrible but uh, before the end of his life he got his company back again and that company uh is still thriving today it's a multi-million dollar company but he was never a multi-million dollar (laughs) businessman by any means (laughs) but then you don't expect an engineer to be a businessman that was the problem Mm -hmm. and i always say it's not like making t-shirts you know these These instruments have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of parts and they're very complex to make. So by the time you invest in making a machine of that complexity, you have to charge a lot for it. But you can only charge so much, otherwise people won't buy it. So you know, there's that sort of vicious cycle. So he was um, at some point losing a lot of money, even though. People using the instruments were making a lot of money from the instruments.
0: Yeah, uh, that's an old story. Albert, thanks, William, so for speaking with us today. The name of the book is Switched On Bob Moog and the Synthesizer Revolution. Albert Glinsky, thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much, Sean. It's been great talking with you.
1: Moncrief, brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.
0: Weekdays at 2 p.m. on News Talk.